let's open up your notes to session three, and there's one final place in the book of Ephesians that the Lord wants to bring to us before we head out today. So there's, there's more, more work to do together and more that God's going to provide. I'm excited for that. Um, I had read a couple years ago a book, it was titled The Walk, in our title as well, uh, but it, the subtitle is The Life-Changing Journey of Two Friends, and it, it was written by a musician named Michael Card. I don't know if any of you follow his stuff. He, he kind of was a, a generation previous to you, but um, kind of arrived on the, on the Christian music scene, and, and a lot of his, his work became pretty popular, um, but also pretty deep in its content and, and just what he was expressing about uh, what it looks like to, to follow Christ in the real places of life. But, but uh, this book, it, it tells the story of, of his relationship with uh, a biblical scholar named William Lane or Bill Lane. And uh, Bill Lane, he, you know, he's, he's a, a, a scholar of the New Testament. Uh, one of the things that he's famous for in particular is his commentary on the book of Hebrews. And I've got that right here. Uh, it's this two volume set on just the book of, of Hebrews. And this is, uh, this is widely used, widely respected. But um, Michael Card, he, he went off to Western Kentucky University um, to, to pursue his, his college studies. And he says that when, when my high school counselor asked me, uh, what, what is your first priority in a job? I'd answered that it not involve people. <laughs> uh, he didn't really want to have to uh, interact with people on a day-to-day basis, but he would learn uh, later in life to be compelled toward people and to move toward them in love. But um, soon he, he came to know this towering figure on his campus of Bill Lane. And he says one of the first things he noticed before he ever met Bill was his walk he just would be determinedly walking forward wherever he, he went. You know, it's hard to keep up with him as he's, he's on the move. But, but he began to take some, some courses uh, from this man and just found that he had profound insights, found him to be somebody that he wanted to learn about life from. And so one day he worked up the courage to go into his office during his office hours and uh, Kind of, he wasn't really sure how to start the conversation, so first he asked him some question about a paper that he already knew the answer to anyway. Uh, but then he asked him, can I maybe have an hour of your time? And, and Bill kind of looked down at his schedule and said, how's about Wednesdays at 2? And so Bill decided he would dedicate an hour of, of, his, of his week to, to just impart um, into Michael Card's life and... and, and Michael uh, explains the impact that that had on him. He says, though I could not have put it into words then, I was a different person from the one who had walked into that office 10 minutes earlier. A person for whom I had the highest regard had taken me seriously. Well, as they, they, they developed their relationship, they began to walk together every day in the afternoon. And they just would go on a walk and they would, they would share about life and and Michael says that there was never any moment where, where Bill turned to him and said, I am officially mentoring you. You are my mentoree, right? Uh, it was never like that, but it, it just 
along the way, he took him uh, with him on the journey and he, he modeled what it was like to follow the Lord, what it was like to engage people, what it was like to, to live out in the difficulties and the suffering of life, to work hard and pursue responsibility. And uh, he, he tells of one particular time that uh, left an impact on him when they were traveling overseas together and they were staying in a, in, a, in a room and there was only one bed available. And William Lane, who's this you know, older middle-aged man, insists that he's going to sleep on the floor and give Michael the bed. And he said, all, all night, all I could think about was the awkwardness of the fact that I was a college student and I, I was given the bed while this expert scholar on the book of Hebrews is around the corner sleeping on the floor. But this was the kind of life that Bill Lane modeled for him again and again. Later on, when, when Michael developed in his music career, at one point he was beginning to get a little burnt out with that, with that scene and the constant frenzy and schedule of everything. And, and, and before a concert that he was going to give in Louisville, um, he began to just kind of fall apart and was, was near a nervous breakdown. And um, he spoke with his wife. He called her up and, and just kind of said, can you, can, can you pray for me? And, and so what she ended up doing is she called Bill and said, could you, could you pray for Michael? This is what he's going through. Uh, well, without telling him, uh, Bill gets in the car, he drives over to Louisville, and he shows up before the concert's going to start. And he walks on in and hugs him. And they just break down and weep together. Because here is this, this meaningful, relational em, em, embrace, somebody who understands him, somebody who is there with him in the darkest moments of life. Well, years later, Bill was living in Seattle, and they had stayed in touch with one another very regularly through, through phone calls. This is before the day of smartphones and, and FaceTime and all that. But um, uh, Bill learned that he had developed terminal cancer. And he called Michael, and he said, I, I want to move to Franklin. That's where Michael was living. And he said this, I want to show you how a Christian man dies. And so Bill had walked with him all the way to the end. And, and, and here's what we want to see today. Our, our walk with Christ is a walk that includes others. We walk with and toward other people in love. And, and, and this is so different than our individualized journey that's in our our culture you know culturally speaking we we love we love to celebrate and watch about uh stories of people who found their own path who despite all the odds and all the naysayers and all the people who didn't believe in them they they followed their dreams and they they made it in their life but this can have an ugly side as well Personal fulfillment, when it's seen as the main goal in life, sometimes other people get in the way of that. And one author uh, mentions this advertisement that, that features about a thousand people making a, a, a human pyramid. And the pyramid is just getting larger and larger, and it's getting as high as, as, the, as the buildings. Uh, but what begins to happen is people are falling all over the place, and people are grabbing and pulling people down and shoving them because everybody wants to be on the top of the pyramid 
And what a picture of how often we engage life. I, I was listening, uh, I, like, I like to follow this podcast called The Moth, where <clears throat> listen to it from time to time, where people just kind of get up on a stage and they tell a story uh, and it has to be something that really happened to them and they can't, they can't come with any notes. And so you just kind of, you get to follow people's storylines and it, it's interesting in, in that way. But, but one of the stories I listened to recently, there, there was this guy, and he was talking about the fact that he had been in, in a one-year relationship with another girl. And uh, it just wasn't going that well. Just wasn't feeling like I don't know if there's there's really a future for this. We're not just really connecting uh, deeply and meaningfully. But didn't want to break that off. You know, there wasn't really any reason um, to do that. Well, well, he he tells of a, of a time when he was in a particular bar, and he he struck up a conversation with with this other girl, and. Uh, and they are just hitting off. And he says, she had a great sense of humor, uh, which means she found all my jokes funny. That's what guys mean when they say a girl has a great sense of humor. <laughs> um, and in and, and the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, you got a girlfriend, man. What, what are you doing here? But it, it, it just feels like this is, this is the one right here. I've, I've never felt this way about somebody else. And so they talk late into the night, and then eventually he leans in and they begin to kiss and make out and and at that point in the story right here's here's the clash of cultural values because the one like moral boundary that still exists in relationships today in our culture is you don't cheat like a bunch of other moral boundaries have gone away but that one still still remains you just don't cheat on on people and cheaters got to die right you know we love to love to kill cheaters and and tar and feather them uh but on the other hand there is there's this value for individual expression and the crowd wants to celebrate that they want to celebrate how he's he's found a fulfilling and exciting experience and they can imagine themselves being in his shoes and so when it comes to that moment in the story they're clapping and they are cheering it doesn't matter that he's just run over somebody else in the process. And of course, if the, if the girlfriend were on the stage and she was telling her heartbreaking story about how this lousy guy had treated her, they, they would be booing him. They would be siding with her. Why? Is it, is it because there's some objective moral reason? Or is it just because, well, that would have, that would have been her story. And it's just the, the, the person's individual journey that matters, not some moral code or the mandate to put others first. Well, listen, if, if your life has no higher calling to answer to, people end up getting used or neglected. This is kind of where eventually in, in, in Jack Kirk's novel, On the Road, uh, where, where some of the characters end up, the characters of Dean and Sal, they reach uh, San Francisco in one of their trips to the West, but, but Dean ends up forgetting about his relationship with Sal. He kind of leaves him stranded with no money and, and nowhere to stay and no way to return home. He, he ends up dumping the girl that he brought with him and hooking up with somebody else. And, and, and Mark Sayers comments about this. The, the imminent, imminent meaning this world's all there is. It's just close at hand. There's nothing above us. Desacralized America may be great for kicks, but it is a world where people get used and then thrown away. 
and, and maybe you've experienced this on a, on a smaller scale. Maybe, maybe you've had friends that have moved on from you because relating with you was really no longer convenient for them. They didn't want to have to push through some of the difficulties. Maybe it didn't work with their agenda to impress some other crowd. And, and, and at some point on their journey, you became expendable to them. Right? What, what taught them to do that? Well, sin, obviously. Uh, but it, it's, it's also the fact that they're a disciple of the culture, they, they've adopted the idea that we're just on our own individual road anyway. And, and what's interesting is that today, while our commitment to people has grown thin, our dedication to the things in our lives that we pursue has seemed to take over everything, right? Things fill in the void. Look what Mark Sayer says, in a, in a super flat culture, again, flat meaning there's nothing above us, where nothing matters. We escape into obsessions and hobbies, interests that bear little ultimate consequence, giving weight to things that do not deserve mountains of time and attention. The 21st century will be a century marked by conspicuous consumption, but also flagrant misuse of time. With religion off the agenda, our culture finds new avenues of devotion and distraction. Instead of moving us toward relationship and people, the culture pushes us toward things. Millions of hours in the 21st century will be spent working through DVD TV series. This was written before the day of Netflix. Um, so, but it, he, he's a little prescient here. Scanning social network sites, gorging on celebrity gossip, downloading music, flipping through home magazines, and playing computer games. Things will take precedence over people. Meaningless activities will overtake our lives. There's nothing wrong with interests and hobbies in their right place, but the 21st century culture will gorge on such activities. The real issues of human existence that have sat front and center of human consciousness have in the super flat imminent world become shoved aside. Listen, they are too Heavy to be carried on the road. Instead, we buzz across the surface of life, never venturing below the surface. Well, the call of Christ is a call from superficiality to reality. It is a call to engage life and relate to people on a level that's, that's deeper than the surface. It's a call... To love. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, and we're going to read verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a flagrant, a fragrant, not a flagrant, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Oh Lord, to imitate you, to love as Christ has loved. Lord, what a high standard. And yet what an excellent model. Lord, in the same way that Michael Card had William Lane mentor him and model life for him. We have the Lord Jesus as our mentor, leading us in the way of love. Would he lead us this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to just talk about two thoughts here, one relating in love and then serving in love. So first, relating in love. What does this look like? Well, back up again to Ephesians 4, verse 1. This is the passage we started with. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Right? That's the big idea. What does that look like? How do you walk worthy? Well, he tells you, with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love right so the, the the first quality that he mentions here is is humility and and we live in a culture that wants some version of love but not really humility right it, it love is the answer but it's not the kind of love where i take the back seat <laughs> to somebody else what they really mean is loving me is the answer, so show me some love, right? That's kind of what the cultural noise about love is really all about. But, but God has called us to take a posture of humility in how we see one another, how we see ourselves. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Humility is the recognition that everything we have and are, everything we accomplish is because of the grace of Jesus Christ to us. Every gift we possess was given not to inflate our self-importance and bolster our ego, but to enable us to minister to others as Christ has ministered to us as a loving servant. Right? Do, you, do you walk into settings like this, into places of life, and, and you, you come in and you treat it like this is about you? You come in with you know, managing your agenda? How can I, how can I not blow it today? How, how can I be seen as somebody who's got it together, who manages things well, who's, who's creative or who's, who's funny, who, who's able to, uh, you know, convince people of my perspective, what, what, you know, whatever, whatever your personality runs toward, or is your mind filled with awareness of what other people in here is God sending me to, right? That, that's the difference between humility uh, and, and, and self-importance. And, and, and in order to relate in love, you, you have to get past this sense of self-importance that you're um, too good for people, right? Maybe there are, there are certain people, even here, that you feel like, I don't know if, how deeply I want to be associated with them, right? I'll be polite, but I don't know if like we want to be like friends, you know, because people, you know, they, 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 they don't like them as much or a little, little, little off, a little weird, right? And you can do that at your school. You can do that in other areas as well. Uh, you can have a tendency to dismiss the people that 
don't highlight you. And so it's like they, they, just, they, they don't laugh at your jokes, which means, right, they don't have a great sense of humor. Um, they just don't tend to, to think you're all that impressive, right? Does, does, does that mean you dismiss them? You don't want to be around them because they don't bring a lot of applause to your life? Well, what does that mean? It means your whole agenda and why you have relationships is, what does this do for me? What does this gain me? How does this make me feel? And, and, and again, in the social media world, this just gets reinforced so much where, where we're looking for this like feedback loop where I, I like your stuff, you like my stuff. You, you do something for me and that's why I want to have you in my world. Right, well, what do you do if there are people in your life, in your family, at your school that you feel like, I just don't know if I really like them? Right? What, what is loving those kinds of people look like? Well, you have, you have to get past your self-importance. You have to get past this thought that they have to line up with you in order to be somebody that God has called you to love. You can't hold yourself so highly. C.S. Lewis writes, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he, quote, likes them. In other words, they do something for him. The, the Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. Well, the second thought he gives us here is, is patience. And you know, patience obviously in- includes not being quick to react, you know, not, not jumping to conclusions, not letting your emotions get the best of you. And, and we'll look at that a little bit more in the next section. But, but I think here also he has in mind patience toward the needs of other people, even, even if you don't find them particularly interesting. Or enjoyable, right? Are, are you are you patient for people in your life that you know a, after you've kind of gotten past two or three lines of conversation? It's like, all right, I think we're about done here, <laughs> and you're you're ready to move on to somebody else and something else. It, it, it's interesting. Sherry Turkle in her book Alone Together. Um, and, and she's got another book titled Reclaiming Conversation. She, she describes what she calls the seven-minute mark in conversation, which is that it takes about seven minutes talking to somebody to get past kind of just the normal chit-chat stuff, just whatever, you know, talking about the weather or something, uh, to get towards something that is going to be meaningful, to get towards something of, of substance. We don't often last the seven minutes. It's like, I, I'll, I'll interact with you for 30 seconds, and then I'll pull out one of these and find something else to do, right? Uh, we, just, we get into the virtual world rather than interacting with the real flesh and blood people around us. Uh, patience in, in, includes uh, patient listening. Here, here's how Michael Card describes it. He says... Our age is a dialogue of the deaf, Bill often said. Right? And he said that long before there was any such thing as social media, where it's like people are shouting at one another and they're not hearing one another. He said, you must develop a lifestyle of listening. 
He would say, when we were talking about some difficulty I was having with some person or another, 25 years later, I've only begun to understand the wisdom of those words. The best way to show someone that you love them is to listen to them. My dear friend told me once on an unforgettable walk we took around the campus, I was agonizing over my future wife, Susan, who at that point was giving me little or no reason for hoping that my affections would ever be returned. Out of my own impatience, I was preparing for a showdown with her, a confrontation that would have surely destroyed the fragile relationship we had. I would talk and talk and talk, and she would listen, I hoped, and agree. If you really want to show her you love her, Bill said with his characteristic intensity, listen to her. Do you know how to listen? Do you know how to pay attention? Maybe something as simple as when your parents are talking to you, Do you listen? Are you there? Are you distracted? Are you anywhere else? Because you've kind of already moved on. You're kind of done with what they have to say. You don't like the fact that they repeat themselves. You don't like the fact that they're going over those details again. You're not particularly inclined toward what they're wanting to tell you anyway. And so mentally speaking, you have moved on from them and you got no more time for this conversation. Right, Even though you have a lot more time than you really think. We need to be people who know how to listen. How to be in this moment. Whatever it is that God has called us to. We're not, we're not wandering off to somewhere else. Thinking there's something better for me over there. Or available instead of being restless. Um, well, well the, the culture of immediate that we have. The culture where you... You get in your car and you drive at high speeds and you go through the fast food line and you pull out your device and, and, and there's the, the, the streams and roads of connectivity that we have. It, it, it affects the way that we relate to people, right? It, it affects our relationships. Sinclair Ferguson says, patience means being able to take a long-term view, especially when things go wrong. A long-term view. That is something that has become so lost on us. Because everything is right in front of our eyes and right before our hands. And if it doesn't matter to me today, this week, in the next five minutes, then it doesn't matter to me. The thought that I'm investing a little bit, a little bit, a little bit over time for some future benefit. You know, the whole idea, nobody's saving for retirement and like, it's like, like right now when you're in your 20s, you'd be putting money away that you're not even going to benefit and enjoy until you're like 75 or 80. Who wants to do that? That, mon- that money can get me something right now, something little and small, and I'll spend it away for those little perceived advantages. But the thought that I'm going to invest and build up something that future me is going to really benefit from and enjoy, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be productive in my life. It's going to allow me to, to serve God and have good opportunities to engage. We just don't take that approach to anything, let alone our relationships. I mean, do you realize you're, you're, you're building something with the people around you, with your family? You're, you're going you're, you're to take your family with you for the rest of your life. Unless you're running away from home, doing your own independent journey, right? Do you you have a long-term view of, let me not respond in a way today that's going to destroy something in my future 
Let me not just feel, think, think in terms of what's going to feel good right now for how I'm going to react and interact. And, and, and the concept for this is forbearing. He, he says, bearing with one another in love. Right? That, 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 that word, bearing, it means there's a weight Right? When, when you've, you've got something on your shoulders and you're, you're carrying it along and you have to keep enduring, you have to keep going while that is weighing you down. But there's a willingness to do that. And he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But in an impatient world, we move on from people quickly. When they offend us, we can block them, we can unfriend them, we can just withhold our affection from them. We become distant and isolated from them because we, we, haven't, even, we haven't even been patient enough to ask questions to them. They said something, they did something that made us feel a little weird. I wonder what you meant by that. I wonder why you've been hanging around that person instead of me. And, and, and instead of taking the time to go to them, and talk with them, we've already moved on. You've already like replanned your next birthday party and who's going to be there or not. It's, just, it's, it's like you're, you're, you're so easily done because we've been taught that this is all about our individual needs. But the humble, the patient, the forbearing person, you don't find the need to, to win. You don't find the need to always prove that you were right when you... When you enter into conflicts, right? When when somebody has accused you of doing something or said, "I I I, I think you're wrong," right? You, you're not always fighting for your agenda, and 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 this shows up in in some of these other exhortations that Paul gives us in in chapter four, verse twenty six. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words. When you're upset, don't let your anger fester. Don't just wallow in your self-pity and, and, and you know, retreat into your emotions. Be quick to resolve things. Be quick to move toward other people when you are upset. Move toward your siblings and your parents and your friends. He says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's a helpful string of, of statements here. He talks about wrath and anger. Wrath and anger is the sense that that person's got to pay for what they've done. You need to hurt because of what you've done to me. And depending on your personality, you have your own methods of punishment. You know, maybe you know how to put your parents in the punish zone and, and, and how you're postured toward them and how you, you know, the way that you just kind of get all cold and how you speak to them. It's like, no, mom and dad, you're in time out. I'll let you out tomorrow, but today you're in time out. Uh, I mean, some of you, this is as practical as you, you punch your brother and your sister when you get upset. That's your way of punishing them. You let wrath overtake you and you hit and you slap. Wait, do you realize that is something that you're going to take with you 
the rest of your life, that doesn't just disappear all of a sudden when you grow up. Right? I, I meet with married couples and, and the, the, the final thing that has brought them into my office is he has put his hands on her. He has knocked her down. He's yanked her hair. She has slapped him. And they've, they've come to realize, wow, we've got a bigger problem than I thought. And they would have never imagined that's where they would have ended up. But unless you give some, some attention to these things now, they don't just go away. You carry them with you on your road. He talks about clamor. Uh, that's a word we don't really use a lot. Um, to, to, you know, clamor means being loud and obnoxious. They talk about like, you know, the, the, cl- the crowd was clamoring at the gate. Uh, they were there. They were wanting to barge on in and protest because they're offended about something. This is a culture of clamor. It's a culture where that, that's what we know how to do. We know how to protest. We know how to shout people down, you know, either literally or with capital letters, you know, on some text. Um, but, but that becomes the response that we're discipled to have. When something offends you, when you think something's not right, uh, you don't ask questions. You don't, you, don't, you don't respond with patience. You respond, respond with outrage. And we've lost all sense of proportion because You guys realize there are some things in this world that call for outrage. And the vast majority of items that get posted online with outrage do not qualify. And so Paul is calling us to be forbearing and not being quick to respond in this way. He talks about slander. Put away slander. Slander is, again, it's a, it's a form of punishment. It's, it's, it's I'm going to share information about you. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But it's, it's designed to harm your reputation. It's designed to affect what other people think about you. Maybe not to think you're like some criminal, but just to kind of lower you a little bit in their estimation that... Oh, uh, you, you, thought, you thought she was such a great person. Well, did you know that actually, well, I'm not, I'm, you know, I don't want to gossip, but, right? Whenever you say that phrase, you're about to gossip. <laughs> it's just going to happen. And, and it's, a, it's a tool, it's a resource that we use that doesn't relate to one another in love. Uh, he talks about being tender toward one another. I think about that. When was the last time that you were tender towards somebody who hurt you? Toward the person who they did the opposite of what you were hoping. They disappointed you. They offended you. And the options ran through your mind of what you could do next. And your response looked like tenderness. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The, the way of Christ is the way of forgiveness. And, and what a standard that is. And, and when, we, when we're not in this, when we're not meditating on this, when we're not thinking about this, we don't really think God in Christ has forgiven of us of, of a whole lot. Because we've not 
We've not allowed this to convict us. We've not allowed this to, to search us. We've not allowed the light to expose the secret places of our heart and reveal to us our sin that drove the nails through Jesus' wrists. We've not been grieved by that. We've not been humbled by the gospel. And so we go through life with a kind of swagger, thinking we're kind of a good person and okay, and therefore people don't have the right to treat me that way. What right do you think you have? There's level ground before the cross of Calvary. Can't be like that servant in the parable that Jesus told who was forgiven $2 billion and finds somebody who owes him like 800 bucks and wants to strangle him. You need to stare at the $2 billion that God has said, it's done. I've put it away forever. And I've put $2 million in your bank account <laughs> that you get to have for all eternity. All right. Second and finally, serving one another. There's sacrifice and there are this gifting that gets highlighted here. Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And what that look like? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus made himself expendable for you and for me. He offered up his life. He offered up everything he had. And, and, and there's a redemptive sacrifice here. There's a sacrifice of, of atonement that is unique to Jesus. But Paul elsewhere uses that same kind of language for you and me, right? Romans 12, in view of the mercy of God, in view of what he's done for us, present your bodies, present your very selves as living sacrifices. I am an offering to the Lord for the benefit of the people around me. Do you see your life in that way? Because the, the way of Jesus, and Jesus wanted to make this clear to, to his disciples, they are on their way, they are walking to Jerusalem. And Jesus stops them on the road and he says, hey guys, I just want you to realize this. This is what's about to happen. When we, when we pull into the city, they're going to take me and they're going to arrest me and, and they're going to beat me and I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again to life. And so I just want that to be clear to you. And, and there are three times they're on the road to Jerusalem and he stops them and tells them again. I just want you to understand, this is, the what's, this is what's about to happen to me. And while they're on that road, oh my goodness, strange dissonance happens. You have the disciples arguing with one another about who's the greatest, who do we think is, is the best among us. You have uh, James and John, the sons of thunder. They show up with their mom and they've got a special request, right? They, they bring their mom with, to, to Jesus to ask for this, right? This is a pretty unique moment right here. Hey, Jesus, when you, when you come in your kingdom, can, can one of us be on your right and one of us be on your left? I mean... <laughs> How obnoxious can you be? How unaware. Right? When you're full of yourself in this way, you just become so blind to the reality around you. You don't even see the person in front of you and what they've just told you because your head is so full 
of thoughts about you. And that's what's filling up these guys right here. And, and, and Jesus knows there's going to be somebody on my right and my left when I come to my kingdom, but they're going to be thieves nailed to a cross. You sure you want that? And, he, and so he asks them, do you think you can drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, yeah, yeah. I don't know what that is, but yeah, give, give me a sip of that. I, I, we, can t- we can drink the cup. And he says, you'll drink the cup. Because the cup that Jesus would drink is the cup of sacrifice. The cup of suffering. And I, I can't pass this up because this is just too good. This is not something I wanted to share. But in John chapter 21, this is after the resurrection. Jesus has a visit with Peter and with the Apostle John. And you guys know how Peter had betrayed Jesus. He had walked away from him three times, didn't want to be associated with him, found Jesus to be expendable on his own journey towards security. And Jesus has restored him, asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then he says in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow me in my way. You used to wander around wherever you wanted, but the time's coming. They're going to lead you up the road, up the road where I have carried the cross And they're going to stretch out your arms, Peter, and you're going to be crucified and you're going to render your life for the sake of the kingdom and for the good of the people that you have served. So he tells them, if you love me, feed my sheep. Extend toward others. Abandon your project for your own comfort and security and pour out your life to those around you and do it all the way to the end and you're going to glorify me and that will be your joy. Follow me, Peter. And then Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who would also lean back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, well, what about this man? And, and Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Right? And we do this. We love to compare. Rather than viewing our lives as a living sacrifice, we, we don't like the fact that maybe I'm sacrificing a little bit more than the people around us. Right? We're going to be doing some tear down a little bit. 
Sometimes y'all like to tell me, you know, so-and-so's not really helping, right? What's that to you, right? Get to work. <laughs> Lay down your life. Sacrifice. Stop paying attention to the people around you. Put your eyes on Jesus who walked all the way straight through death into life. And that's what Jesus tells Peter here. But that's not the end of John's story either. This man who on the road to Jerusalem came to Jesus and said, can I, can I sit on your right or your left? And Jesus said, you want to be greatest in the kingdom, you become a servant of all. And so he says next, verse 23, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he should remain until I come, what is that to you? And he says, it's this disciple who's writing this, this book. This is John here. And, and the reason why people began to quote that saying, like, well, may, maybe this, this dude is going to stay around until Jesus returns is because John was the last of the followers of the way, the last of the 12 disciples to remain alive after the rest had been martyred or, or had died. But, but John would find himself on the island of Patmos. Patmos means the crushing of me. It was a prison island where people were sent away in exile to pay for their crimes. And that's the, that's the island that he writes the book of Revelation from. And he will die all alone, separated from his family, separated from his friends and the people that he loves because he spent his life as a living offering to God. And he saw the glory of Jesus. He saw that it was... It was worth it. Look, I, I know that, that that seems very large and it should. It should shock us out of the bane existence that we so often settle for. But there's just a lot of small practical ways that, that we can express this. To, to, to walk in love, to serve, means to be willing to go in a direction that's different than your plans or your preferences. You're not always trying to get those to win the day, it interrupts your schedule, it interrupts your agenda with something else that's going to serve other people. You know, Jesus, people use that phrase, walk the extra mile, like that comes from Jesus. Jesus says, if somebody makes you walk a mile, walk two. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Could you imagine if, you're, if like your parents asked you, hey, go out and walk a mile. And you're like, sure, I'll walk two of them, right? It's, this kind of standard is so foreign for so often what we're fighting for when they just want you to get off the couch and do something. <laughs> just want you to unload the dishwasher. just want you to take out the garbage. And you've and you, you waited behind. And you're not going to like take out the garbage and do the dishes for them without them asking you to do that. so. But that, that's what it looks like to walk with Jesus in these years of your life. Jesus modeled this for his disciples. We talked about the dimension of him washing their, their feet and you know, there's actually a saying, and this is something that William Lane loved to, uh, to cite as the background for this event. There's a saying among rabbinic literature that every task that a slave does for his master will a student do for his teacher except for washing the feet. In other words, a student would, would act like a slave, act like a servant toward his teacher 
in almost every way because but he, he's following him except he's not going to demean himself so much as to stoop down low and wash the feet and Jesus the teacher stoops down for his followers for his students and that's exactly what he does and he says what I've done for you I want you to do for one another a new commandment I give to you that you love one another that's not new in the sense that 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 verse never showed up in the Bible until John 13 it's new and now you see what I mean now you see what love looks like. All right, I'm going to have to move quickly through this last point here, but we, we serve through sacrifice. We serve through our gifting as well. God, God has gifted us a certain way. He's put gifting in you. He's, he's, he's made you to have certain talents and certain abilities, and, and the, the Holy Spirit empowers us beyond our abilities as well, not so that that can become our own personal stage and, and platform, but so that those can become means of serving others in love. And so he says in Ephesians 4 verse 9, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in the context, that grace is the grace that shows up in, in gifting. And then verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And, and we, we serve one another through, through our words, words that encourage, words that build up, words that, that grant grace, right? He says in Ephesians 4 verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way, the head that's Christ. And he says that when each part is working properly, the, the body grows so that it builds itself up in Love, some of you like to speak the truth. Uh, it's like, I'm just being honest, but you don't, you don't do it in love. And that's, in, in, particularly what he has in mind here is, is the truth about the gospel. The truth about your convictions and your faith. Are you speaking that to people around you? Are you speaking truth imparting it into the lives of fellow believers, into the lost world that surrounds you? And are you doing it in love? Because sometimes those two things don't go together well. There are people that think that they, you know, they're, they're love people, but they don't, they don't really have any convictions in them, any sense of, you've got to believe this. Well, that's not really love. If, if you're not telling people, this is the rescue, this is the way out from the, the building that's collapsing and on fire, and you need to go through this door right here, don't go through those other paths. You just let them wander out into their own destruction. That's not love. And there are other people that, they, 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 kinda, they, they like the fact that they've got it figured out. They like the fact that, no, that, that's not what the Bible says. That's not, that's not what we believe. But their heart doesn't burn with compassion toward the people around them. And God has called us to speak what is true in love and to impart words that build up, that encourage, which again means you need to get outside of yourself. You need to be paying attention. You need to be listening, listening to the people around you and their needs, listening to the voice of the Spirit of God in you that is moving you toward them to speak into their lives. 
And we love by exercising spiritual gifts. We've got some text thing happening over here, but I thought we got rid of all those phones. Ah, okay, got it. Never mind. Um, we exercise spiritual gifts in love. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. He says, especially that you might prophesy. Those, those are not a contradiction. If, if it's done with the right motive and the right purpose, you ought to be people who are asking God, gift me, empower me, move upon me in a mighty way. Cause me to be anointed. Cause me to be an influencer in this generation. Give me words of insight. Words that sound strange in a lost world. But invite consideration. Create a sense of interest and desire. God, give me Give me an ability to serve in mercy. Give me an ability to teach. Give me an ability to show hospitality. Hospitality means you, you, you make people feel like they're at home. They, they feel welcome. They, they feel comfortable. Because you know how to create settings that, that lend to that. You know how to speak to them in a way that invites them and pulls them in and surprises them. God, give me prophetic perspective. Give me knowledge beyond my natural ability. Give me an ability to know what is operating inside of the people around me, their fears, their concerns, their secrets. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14 that when, when prophecy happens, these secrets of the heart are disclosed. It's God's mercy bringing things to the light. And the conclusion is, surely God is in your midst. Oh my goodness. I want that for you. I want that for me in an increasing way. But we should want that. Again, not so that we can post about it. No, prophesy it again today. <laughs> uh, it's in love. And, and, and a very helpful question that I've been taught to ask and that I, I bring into times like this and places of ministry is, Lord, how do you want me to love your people today? What do you want me to do? Who do you want to send me to? How are you going to impart and empower me to show your love to the people that you love? So I, I want to... I want to conclude by praying for you. And when you love others, you, you take risks. Because anybody who serves in any kind of gifting, there's always the risk that that's going to flop and you're going to look stupid and people are going to laugh and they're going to be analyzing the words that you're using. When you love somebody, you get past all that. And you move toward them in this walk. So let's stand together.
it will serve you best if you take it with you. If you let these agendas characterize your walk. If you take this and you, you set a course, you set a way that you want to move forward toward the Lord, maybe that is discovering what gifting has He placed in you. Maybe that's creating that as a burden for prayer. That every week you're going to pray. You're going to pray for power. You're going to pray for abilities to serve in His kingdom. Maybe that's a, an action plan for serving, for sacrifice, for... What are you going to do in your home? How are you going to move toward in love the people that are in your world? How are you going to continue to walk in light and ensure that you're not going to allow secrecy to bring you back to places of darkness? So guys, as we're concluding here, I just just want you to give a moment. You and your own soul, you tell God. What are you owning from this weekend? And you just, you just communicate to him one commitment that you're going to do from what you've learned this weekend. And you pray, God, help me. God, help me to walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling.